Chapter thirty four of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty four An Earnest Man. Never had that rude barn like structure, Osthorpe Church, looked prettier than on the Sunday next after Easter. All those exotics which had glorified the village fane on Easter Sunday had been restored to the ladies and gentlemen who had lent them. Mrs. Aspinall's arums and azaleas had been carted home to her hothouses. Dulcie's gardenias and white tulips were safe on their shelves under the head gardener's care, or were adorning the rooms their mistress lived in. But the church looked no poorer for the loss of these expensive adornments. Altar and font, pulpit and reading desk, were beautified with borders of freshest moss, in which were embedded clusters of primroses, violets, and wood anemones. The base of the font was a mass of daffodils, shining golden bright against the dark granite pedestal, purpled by time. To the villagers, who had known and loved these wild woodland blossoms ever since their eyes first opened to an understanding of nature's beauty, the simple adornments of today were sweeter than the grand unknown flowers which had served for the paschal decorations. Flowers lent for the occasion by Mrs. Aspinall and Miss Courtney, flowers with long Latin names which nobody could remember or pronounce, were not half so good as the modest little blossoms that glorified the woods near home, the woods which were, or seemed to be, public property. There was no sense of obligation or patronage to mar the villagers' delight in the decorations today. As they lingered after the service to admire font or altar, there was no need to say, how kind of Mrs. Aspinall, or how good of Miss Courtney, to contribute such lovely flowers. They had only to lift up their hearts in silent thankfulness to the Creator who gave his woodland blossoms for all alike, and gave them with a plenteousness which no earthly gardener, labour as he might in the multiplication of slips and seedlings, could imitate. Lady Frances and Dulcie had worked their hardest for several hours on Saturday to achieve even so simple a result. Lord Blatchmardyn's daughter had shrewdly determined that the only way to make Dulcie forget her troubles was to employ her mind and fingers about something, no matter how trivial the task. When the church work was finished, Lady Frances found she had a pressing necessity for shopping at Highclere, and entreated Dulcie to drive her there directly after luncheon. The drive and the shopping, which was a very small business as to actual expenditure, occupied the whole afternoon, for Francis insisted upon coming round by Blatchmardyn Castle on their way home, and running in to see if the dear old Sheik was well, and was resigned to his daughter prolonging her visit at Fairview for a week or two. They were home in time for the afternoon tea, which Sir Everard, whether well or ill, always shared with them. But that friendly meal had lost something of its old pleasantness. Dulcie no longer hung over her father's chair as she ministered to him, no longer sat at his feet, or rested her bright head upon his knee in childlike affection. She brought him his cup of tea, and waited on him with respectful tenderness, but the old caressing ways were wanting, and Sir Everard felt that his daughter and he had drifted wide apart since their return to Fairview. Dulcie sat in her corner by the hearth, joined politely in any conversation that her father or Lady Frances started, 
but it seemed somehow as if her thoughts were far away from them. Frances noticed that this curious restraint was always upon her in her father's presence. She talked more freely and seemed happier when the two girls were alone together. Yet she used to be so utterly devoted to her father, mused Frances. Morton once complained to me that he was only second in her love. But I suppose she has not forgiven Sir Everard for breaking her engagement. I dare say that would be a hard thing for any girl to forgive. And these gentle girls have an immense power of resistance. I only wish she would fall in love with Beville and make a happy end of all this perplexity. But that seems quite too good to happen. There was a twitter among the village children, and a thrill of expectation even in older breasts, on the Sunday next after Easter, when the schoolmistress began her voluntary on the harmonium, and when every eye that could so turn was directed to the low stone doorway of the vestry, whence the new curate was presently to emerge. Hardly any one except Mr. Gomersall, the churchwarden, had seen him, or had any idea what he was like. He might be big or little grey or dark or sandy. Those most interested in his coming, as in an event which stirred the stagnant waters of village life, had made mental pictures of him involuntarily, in the vagabond fancy to which an unemployed mind is disposed. All the young women in the village regretted Mr. Mork, all the young men ridiculed and affected to despise him, yet were glad he was gone. The middle-aged, steady-going parishioners had suspected him of papistical leanings, and hoped the new man would be of broader and less modern views, that he would snuffle and drawl less than the Reverend Lionel, and would be able to preach a good, plain-sailing, practical sermon in twelve or fifteen minutes. And now the arpeggios of the voluntary swelled with all the power of the loudest stops in the harmonium, and heralded the entrance of the stranger. He had to stoop a little as he came through the arched doorway, and when he lifted his head and looked around him with a swift, sweeping glance that surveyed the whole congregation in a flash, his parishioners saw that their pastor was a man worth looking at. He looked somewhat older than his three-and-thirty years. He was tall, broad-shouldered, and erect, with a noble head nobly set on. His eyes were dark grey, his complexion was pale, and there were shadows about his eyes that told of overwork or ill-health. He looked a man born to command, and the congregation felt that he ought to have been a bishop, and was altogether too good for Osthorpe. "'He'll never stay in such a dead and alive place as Osthorpe,' thought Mrs. Gomersall, the churchwarden's wife, a rosy-faced buxom matron, glorious in the freshness of her Easter Sunday bonnet. Mr. Haldimond walked slowly to the reading-desk, looked with a pleasant smile at the primroses and violets in their mossy border, glanced once more round the church, and in that one glance saw the fair-haired, sad-faced girl in the Fairview pew, with downcast eyes upon her book, and the bright brunette face beside her, and wondered a little who these two girls could be, so different from the rest of the congregation, not even excepting the Honourable Mrs. Aspinall, who confronted the newcomer with the placid impertinence of her double eyeglass. Sir Everard had accompanied his daughter and Lady Frances to church according to his unvarying habit. He was looking ill and careworn, a fact which Mrs. Aspinall had noted without the aid of her eyeglass, for although it was quite permissible to stare at a clerical nobody like Mr. Haldimond, 
it was not good form to scrutinise so important a personage as sir everard courtenay with the same direct gaze at the baronet mrs aspinall stole an occasional glance full of compassion no wonder he looks so ill when he has nothing to interest him in life except that chit of a daughter she reflected what a pity he doesn't marry arthur haldimond began the service in his low grave voice which was distinctly heard in the furthest corners of the old church he read admirably as everybody felt before the first part of the service was over there was no attempt at intoning no fashionable sing-song no brisk cantering over the level ground of the liturgy with a view to leaving more time for the decorative or musical portions thereof all was sober serious reverential his sermon was brief for he did not wish to weary those simple early dining folks some of whom had driven half a dozen miles to hear him but brief as the sermon was it told his hearers a good deal it told them that he had put his hand to the plough meaning to follow it with all his heart and all his strength that he had come among them prepared to love them and to work for them as he had loved and worked for a large mass of people in one of the most notorious neighbourhoods of the biggest city in the world it is a place that has borne an evil name ever since it has been a place at all it is hardly possible to imagine a wickeder place out of hell he said yet i found plenty of kind hearts plenty of willing hands and much instinctive christianity to help me in my work i found plenty of parishioners worthy of a parish priest's love of his confidence and respect and hardly one who was not entitled to his pity not one so bad that there was no fair spot in the evil nature not one so deeply fallen as to be unworthy a good man's effort to pick him up i have left them not because i was tired of them not because i ever for one single moment of my life among them despaired of doing good to them and finding improvement in them but because my physical health broke down under the strain of continual and anxious work and because the doctors warned me that if i went on my mental health must give way too forgive me my dear friends for talking to you about myself but i want you all to know what manner of parson i am that i am used to hard work and love it and that you need never be afraid to send for me or to come to me or to send your children to me when you think they need more instruction than the ordinary sunday school course can give them i love to teach the young i love to talk with the old i shall start instruction classes for boys and girls on four evenings of the week two evenings for the boys two for the girls i will only keep them an hour at a time for i don't want to weary them or to make the scriptures unpalatable to them by overdosing i want to show them what a lovely book their bible is and what ineffable wisdom they may find in its pages if they know how to seek count upon me my dear brethren as one of yourselves one with you in your joys and your griefs a friend to whom no trouble of yours can be indifferent who can never weary in working with you to make our own little bit of this big world better and nearer heaven the preacher's words were so plain and straightforward that the smallest child in the church understood him his deep resonant voice trained in speaking to large congregations softened as he addressed this little flock 
he looked round upon them with his kindly grey eyes, as if he were already their friend. The grave, handsome face, with its ever-varying expression, the frank, sympathetic manner, won their hearts before his first sermon was ended. This man was a priest whom they could revere and love. "'Didn't I tell you he was the right sort, Bess?' whispered Mr. Gomersall to his wife, as he ducked to grope for his hat under the bench in his comfortable family pew. Mrs. Aspinall's barouche stood before the churchyard gate, the well-fed horses tossing their heads and jingling their bits to the admiration of the villagers. But Mrs. Aspinall was in no hurry to get into her carriage and drive away. Coming out of the porch, she contrived to waylay Sir Everard and the two girls. "'My dear Sir Everard, this is a surprise. I had no idea you had returned. How cruel of you, Dulcie, not to let me know!' I should have rushed to call upon you directly if I had had the remotest notion. How do you do, Francis? Naughty girl, you haven't been to see me for an age. But, dear Sir Everard, you are not looking quite so well as I had hoped to see you. Mm, my friends are charmingly unanimous in that opinion, answered Sir Everard rather wearily. I suppose the fact is that blue skies and southern coasts are no remedy for chronic disorders of long-standing. A man may take his gout or his rheumatism to the Fijis or the Philippines, but gout is gout and rheumatism is rheumatism to the end of the chapter. "'Well, I am very glad you have come home,' said Mrs. Aspinall, "'and now you're all coming to lunch with me. "'Oh, yes, you are,' as Sir Everard began to excuse himself. "'I shall take no denial.' Dulcie owes me some recompense for running away just before my little dance. It was a very nice little dance, wasn't it, Francis? It was awfully jolly, answered Lady Frances. I'm going to ask the curate man to luncheon, said Mrs. Aspinall. Do you know, I never felt more interest in anybody at first sight. Quite an awakening sort of person, don't you know? I only hope he won't make us feel uncomfortable in our minds, and that he will confine himself to stirring up the poor people, who drink and swear to a shocking extent, I'm told, and require to have their consciences worked upon. A remarkably fine-looking man, too, a handsome, intellectual head. I hear that he is a man with history. He belonged to rich people, and was brought up in the lap of luxury, and began life in the very best society. And when he was three or four and twenty, his people contrived to lose all their money somehow, and he went into the church. Oh, here he comes! They had been standing on a bit of level greensward on one side of the porch, Mrs. Aspinall murmuring her confidences to Sir Everard, Dulcie by her father's side, with sad, serious face and downcast eyes, Frances Grange, bright and animated as usual, returning the greetings of her humble acquaintances with smiles and nods. Mr. Haldimond came slowly along the path with Mr. Gomersall, the churchwarden, by his side. This gave Mrs. Aspinall her opportunity. "'Mr. Gomersall, pray make me known to our new pastor,' she said and the good-tempered farmer stammered out an introduction, presenting the stranger in a confused form of words to Mrs. Aspinall and Sir Everard. "'I have set my heart upon your taking your luncheon with me,' said the lady. "'Sir Everard and his daughter and Lady Frances Grange are coming. The barouche will hold us all. 
it's a regular noah's ark now please don't refuse me you couldn't have a better opportunity for getting acquainted with ever so many of your parishioners at once arthur haldimond hesitated stole a glance at dulcie's sad pale face and accepted the fifth seat in the barouche it was not mrs aspinall's overpowering manner which few people could stand up against that influenced his acceptance but that second look at dulcie had interested him curiously in the girl's character here surely was the heroine of some painful story so young so exquisitely girlish yet with such deep sorrow written in every line of the innocent face mr haldimond and the two girls sat with their backs to the horses sir everard occupied the place of honour by mrs aspinall's side the curate glanced from dulcie's face to her father's and there too he saw the impress of secret care it was not ill health alone that had drawn those deep lines about the handsome mouth that perpendicular wrinkle in the thoughtful brow much brooding over painful memories the rankling misery of one great sorrow had moulded those features into a look of intense melancholy how charmed you must be at morton's recovery began mrs aspinall smiling benevolently at dulcie but a sharp kick from lady frances stopped this gush of sympathy and turned the current of the lady's speech and how delightful it must have been for you to see the dear romantic moors with their mahogany complexions and their white drapery and the blue blue southern sea and the mountains and the scenery in a general way i suppose it is absolutely delicious it is very beautiful answered dulcie with a mechanical air but you like home best perhaps suggested mr haldimond yes i used to be very fond of osthorpe used to be has your mind outgrown this little place oh no only oh, since the doctor says papa must not spend another winter in england i feel that osthorpe is no longer our home faltered dulcie we must reconcile ourselves to being wanderers and i suppose next winter you will want to go still further afield you'll be asking sir everard to take you to egypt or india i shall be glad to go wherever is best for him what has become of miss porker asked lady frances oh my poor dear louisa had one of her tiresome headaches said mrs aspinall but i dare say she will be well enough to take her luncheon with us the fact was that poor dear louisa had been coaxed to forego the morning service in order that she might make herself generally useful in preparing an elegant-looking luncheon for the baronet and his daughter whom mrs aspinall fully aware of their return despite her affected surprise at the fact was determined to take home with her the consequence of this prudent arrangement was a table elegantly decorated with hothouse flowers and a tasteful display of those french-looking hors d'oeuvre in the way of anchovies caviar olives and tiny pink and white radishes and other small dainties which set forth a table at a moderate cost and give colour and variety to the homely roast mutton or the monotonous boiled chicken to all outward seeming the luncheon party at aspinall towers was a success arthur haldimond was a man of wide reading and considerable experience he had travelled a good deal he had lived in society and out of society he was able to talk to anybody and of almost any subject 
he contrived to interest sir everard he contrived to interest dulcie lady frances was charmed with him mrs aspinall told herself that the curate man was an acquisition and miss porker hung upon his words as if he were inspired after luncheon there was a sauntering half-hour in the italian garden which looked its best under a cloudless blue sky and as mrs aspinall and her guests strolled in and out of the narrow serpentine walks or up and down a broad green alley mr haldimond contrived to take his place at dulcie's side i hear that i shall find you a most valuable coadjutor miss courtenay he said when they were far enough from the rest of the party to be confidential mr gomersall tells me that you have done wonders for the school and that all the poor people adore you they are very good to think so much of such small kindnesses answered dulcie with a sigh i have been very happy among them have been why speak in a past tense i count upon your help as a pillar of strength pray do not disappoint me oh, my life henceforward will be very uncertain my father's health may oblige us to leave osthorpe at any moment oh let us hope not and even if you have to desert us sometimes that's no reason why you should not interest yourself in your native village while you are here think what a glorious thing it is to be the dispenser of happiness to those whose joys are so few to be a consoler among those whose sorrows are so many we all have our sorrows answered dulcie with deepest despondency oh i hope that the griefs which shadow your bright young life are but passing clouds said mr haldimond contemplating the sweet sad face with infinite compassion yet you speak as if all joy were gone from you for ever it has answered dulcie oh, believe me no youth lives in the present and deems every sorrow eternal it is only when we have travelled some distance on the road of life that we know the meaning of hope your father's precarious health is the cause of your unhappiness i apprehend it is one cause can you not find comfort in the thought that your love has lightened his life that the same filial love will console and cheer him to the end and that when the hour of parting shall come as it must come for all of us the severance will be but for a little while we say good-bye to each other in a world whose brightest hours and fairest scenes are shadowed by the pain and travail of all nature to meet where there is neither grief nor care and are we all to meet there asked dulcie with a despairing look will not the sinners be shut out of that happy world oh, the unpenitent sinner only god's great love promises forgiveness to every sinner who honestly and really not in a mere form of words but with all his heart and mind and strength and with every act of atonement in his power repents his sins i see it is not enough for him to be sorry in his heart of hearts he must atone he must bear the brunt of his sin he must endure the consequences of his evil doing here if he wants to escape them hereafter a man who is sorry in his heart of hearts would naturally do his utmost to atone for his sins there was a striking instance of that in your own neighbourhood last year in the case of that unhappy creature who gave himself up to justice for a murder committed twenty years ago 
ignorant brutalised as one might suppose such a man to be yet even to his blunted mind conscience spoke plainly and showed him the only way to obtain pardon he looked at dulcie as he finished speaking and was startled by the ghastly pallor of her face the horror in her eyes oh um, forgive me he faltered i fear i have spoken of a topic which is in some way painful yes she answered hurriedly it is a painful subject the blakes are our friends oh i understand pray forgive me a man coming a stranger into a neighbourhood is sure to make mistakes of this kind society is so interlinked and bound together let us talk of more cheerful subjects i want you to tell me all about the schools miss courtenay mr gomersall has given me some information but though he seems the best-natured of men and ready to cooperate with me in every way he has not the knack of expressing himself very clearly and i have a great deal yet to learn dulcie roused herself with an effort and endeavoured to answer all the curate's questions the warm earnestness of his manner his evident delight in the work before him beguiled her into a brief forgetfulness of her own troubles and for the next half-hour she talked brightly of her experiences in the schools and among the cottagers of osthorpe you must make friends with the elder miss blake she said the lady whom almost everybody calls aunt dora you will find her a more valuable ally than i could possibly be i am inclined to doubt that but if you will introduce me to the lady i will do my best to secure her aid oh, i'll leave someone else to do that stammered dulcie i'm not likely to see miss blake for some time mr haldimond felt that he had again touched upon some painful subject it seemed to be his evil fate to distress this sweet girl whose sadness he would so gladly have lessened by any art in his power sir everard came up to them at this moment under convoy of mrs aspinall who had been exerting all her fascinations in a prolonged saunter about the gardens and had succeeded in making the baronet's life a burden to him oh my dear dulcie if you and lady frances are ready i shall be glad to take you home he said strangling an incipient yawn and dulcie ran off to summon frances who was enlivening the faithful porker with her pleasant chat and making that genteel drudge forget her drudgery and her dependence you don't think the walk across the park or through the fields will be too much fatigue for you asked dulcie when they were ready to start oh pray let my carriage take you home urged mrs aspinall it can be ready in a quarter of an hour uh, you're very kind said sir everett and no i shall enjoy the walk this lovely afternoon and so they departed mrs aspinall miss porker and mr haldimond walking with them to the little iron gate which divided the gardens from the park mr haldimond would willingly have gone further with them but he was bent upon getting a little enlightenment from mrs aspinall as to the social mysteries amidst which he had found himself blindly stumbling having parted from the baronet mrs aspinall who liked masculine society was all sweetness to the curate oh, don't be in a hurry to leave us she entreated you have no afternoon service and you have hours to spare before what mr mawk used to call vespers much of the indignation of our country bumpkins oh, you are very good but i must go back to spend an hour in the sunday school 
I mean to revive the old-fashioned afternoon service, for Mr. Gomersall tells me it was the most popular service of the day, as it suited farmers and people who live a long way off. Oh, pray don't make a slave of yourself, expostulated Mrs. Haspinall in a tone of friendly interest. Us thought people are horridly ungrateful. They will only revile you for your pains. When you do well and suffer for it, quoted Mr. Haldimond, I must do my utmost according to my lights and abide the issue. But I fear I have been doing very badly to-day. I had set my heart upon winning the friendship of that sweet-looking girl, Miss Courtney, and on two occasions I was idiot enough to say something that caused her extreme distress. Yet I had no idea why it should be so. The first time was when I spoke of the man who was tried at Highclere for a murder, and condemned upon his own confession. The second was when I asked her to introduce me to a certain Miss Dora Blake. "'Oh, you poor, foolish man! You could hardly have done worse!' exclaimed Mrs. Aspinall. "'This comes of not getting yourself coached by someone who knows the society you are coming into. Mr. Mork ought really to have given you the carte du pays. However, in Miss Courtney's case, it was almost impossible to avoid coming to grief.' for even I myself did not know the real state of affairs, till Lady Frances Grange enlightened me just before luncheon. Pray explain. Well, in the first place, you ought not to have spoken of the murder, because the man who was murdered was Walter Blake of Tangley, to whose only son, Morton, Miss Courtney was engaged. Oh, said Mr. Haldimond, she is engaged, is she? Oh, don't interrupt, troublesome man, cried Mrs. Aspinall with her kittenish air. If you were listening properly, you would have heard that I said was engaged, not is engaged. To gratify some caprice of Sir Everard's, the engagement has been broken off, and Dulcie is absolutely miserable, and six months ago she was the brightest, happiest little creature. Oh, but surely her father must have had some substantial reason for breaking the engagement, said Mr. Haldimond. He would not sacrifice his daughter's happiness to a whim. What reason could he have? Morton is altogether charming. He has horrid radical ideas, but still is excessively nice. He has a fine estate, is entirely his own master, intellectual, ambitious, good-looking and high-principled. What more could the most exacting father demand in his daughter's suitor? Yet there must be a hitch somewhere, said the curate thoughtfully. No father would willingly make his daughter unhappy, and I fear that Miss Courtney is really unhappy. Even in her conversation with me, a stranger, she unconsciously revealed the depth of her misery. And she is so girlish, childish almost in her freshness and simplicity. I feel intensely sorry for her. Oh, sweetest child, my heart positively bleeds for her, said Mrs. Aspinall, with a sigh which was almost extinguished in a yawn. Do come back to the house and take some tea. Ah, oh, thanks, you are too good, but I must go to my school. And the curate shook hands with the two ladies, and went out at the little gate and across the grass, with the steady, swinging pace of a man who has walked half over England, and done no small portion of the continent, at a systematic five miles an hour. End of chapter 34